0: And so today, we're going to be picking up where we last left off there and in verse 13. Now, some of the things that we're going to be, some of the main topics we're going to be covering today, some of the lessons we're going to be learning today, um, first of all, is waiting on the Lord, the importance of just waiting, and we're also going to take a close look at the idea... At this important concept of redeemer. All right, so before we begin reading our passage this morning, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord Heavenly Father, we are, as Isaac prayed already, that was thankful that you've brought us all here. Um, whether it's a few or many, we know that you're here with us and it's a blessing just to be in your presence. And so now as we open up your word, pray that you will speak loudly and clearly, Lord. Share the words, the wisdom, the love, the grace, all those things that you have in store for us, share them with each and every person that's here, with each and every person that's watching and listening right now, Lord. We we need to hear you, especially in this world, in this time when there's just so many mixed messages, so much falsehood, so many lies, Lord. We need your word right now, Lord. Be like, maybe like a a light switch being turned on in in a very dark place. And fill this room with your spirit. We love you and praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Ruth, chapter 3, verse 14. And the word of God says, So she laid down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, Don't let it be known that that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, Bring the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl, and she went into town. She went to her mother-in-law Naomi who asked her what happened my daughter then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her she said he gave me these six measures of barley because he said don't go back to your mother-in-law's empty don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed Naomi said my daughter my daughter wait until you find out how things go for he won't rest until he resolves this today. So, reading this here, if I had to guess, I I really don't think that Ruth nor Boaz, I don't think they probably slept much after that final conversation that they had that night. For Boaz, his mind was probably preoccupied with how he was going to convince Naomi's nearest relative to abdicate his role as the nearest kinsman redeemer in the morning. But also I'm sure that he had some anxieties over whether he would be able to gain the right to Ruth's hand. And no doubt these issues were also on the mind of Ruth. But she had the added concern of not being noticed in the morning. See, in order to preserve her reputation of being a woman of noble character, and we see that about her there, as she's described this way in verse 11, she would need to be gone before anyone would be able to recognize her. Aware that this could be a major issue for her. Boaz urges her not to let, not to let it be known that she had been at the threshing floor. Again, not because anything inappropriate had happened or anything had happened between them two, but you know people. We all know people, and people are people and are prone to gossip without knowing all the facts. But before she leaves on that dark morning, he surprises her. He stops her and surprises her and requests that she grab the shawl she was wearing and to hold it out. And upon doing so, he proceeds to shovel in six measures of barley. It's not exactly a a box of chocolates or a bouquet of flowers nor is it anything close to an engagement ring, but still it was a symbolic gesture. It was a symbolic gesture, nonetheless, that he indeed cared for her, and he cared for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so Ruth managed to return back to her home undetected, and when she gets there, upon her arrival, Ruth is met by Naomi, who wants to know all the details. So what happened? Let me know. Tell me. Tell me. What's going on? What were the events of that evening? And after telling her all that had happened, and hearing all that had taken place, she simply tells Ruth to wait. They'd done all that they could, and now the initiative, the next steps rested on Boaz see Naomi knew that Boaz wouldn't be able to rest until he had resolved the matter that day until then this must have just been a time of considerable anxiety for Ruth like what's going to happen I want to do something but I can't I just we had to just wait Again, feeling like things are now out of her hand. She had claimed her right to marriage, and yes, she would be married. Now, again, her anxiety was, among other things, is who was she going to get married to? Would it be to Boaz or would it be to the other person, that other family redeemer, the nearest one that was before Boaz? Now, it's been said that this is often the most difficult part of faith. When no more action can be taken and nothing remains but to wait patiently. To wait patiently for God to work out his will. It is at this moment that doubts arise and anxiety creeps in. I'm sure many of you have had to wait. It's one of the biggest lessons that I think the Lord showed me in my Christian walk, patience, waiting on Him. Again, over the years, I've learned that waiting on the Lord is also one of the most potentially sanctifying and necessary aspects of the Christian life. It's one of those glorious gospel paradoxes that helps us understand what the Lord um, helps us to understand what the Lord told Isaiah in Isaiah 55:8, "For my thoughts are' not your thoughts, neither your ways, my ways." We as Christians, we pray in hope, and then we wait on the Lord to answer. A Christian man prays for a job so he can provide for his family as God has commanded. And then he waits. The mother prays that God will draw her wayward son to himself, unto salvation. And then she waits. We pray that God will make our future path clear. And then we wait. And while doing so, like many of you have already have done before, you read Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, for the thousandth time for comfort. And there it says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The Puritans understand this understood this reality well and developed something of a doctrine of waiting. They refer to it as as they refer to it as being in God's school of waiting. William Carey understood it well. He spent many years in a mission field before seeing his first convert. And also the Bible is full of stories of people who understood the importance of waiting. Here's what David said in Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Now, as difficult as it can be, waiting builds spiritual muscles in a unique manner. Isaiah, again, makes this truth clear in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 but they who wait on the lord shall renew their strength they shall mount with wings as eagles they shall run and they shall run and grow weary and not grow weary they shall walk and not faint what a glorious promise my friends what a glorious promise that we have but here's the thing Our discontented hearts still find it difficult to wait. But still, waiting on the Lord does many good things for us. It does many good things for you. Waiting causes us to pray without ceasing. We are needy, and He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is always faithful and the outcome of our waiting proves him to be wholly true. Waiting instills in us a clearer understanding that we're creatures absolutely dependent upon our creator. Though our sinful hearts crave more, crave omniscience and omnipotence Omnipotence, we possess neither. And waiting helps us to focus on that reality. Waiting, my friends, increases our faith. The writer of Hebrews defines faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, as faith is a reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Christian brothers and sisters, we wait and God works. Waiting transfers the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty sovereignty, from, from the speculative realm to the practical. You see, in waiting, we actually experience God's lordship in an intimate way. Waiting grounds our future in a certain hope. This was Paul's point in Romans chapter eight, verses twenty-four and twenty-five, where he says, "Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not for what we do not see, we wait with it. We wait for it with patience." Waiting, my friends, reminds us that we live between times. When Jesus returns, the not yet will collapse into the already and there will be no more waiting for an answer to desperate prayers. The kingdom will be consummated and Jesus will set everything right. But until then, Pray and wait, and are sanctified by God's wise process. Waiting, my friend, stabs eternity on our eyeballs. When we bring urgent petitions before the Lord, we wait with expectation, and the city of man, which we live, fades in importance as we begin to realize the city of God is primary. as Jan- Jonathan Edwards prayed, "O Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs." See, waiting helps do that. It prioritizes the eternal over the temporal in accordance with Second Corinthians chapter 4:18, where It says, "We do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Friends, some of the greatest figures in the Bible, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, they had to wait many years, many years for God's promises. Everything that happened in the meantime was used to prepare them inwardly as well as outwardly. Then, when they reached their promise, they were blessed beyond measure. And so, too, God invites us to trust in His goodness today and His faithfulness tomorrow. Let me repeat that. God invites us to trust His goodness today and His faithfulness tomorrow. So relinquishing control to him is the main route to experience the love and peace, his love and peace. It unites our hearts with his. It creates a level of maturity and character that we will take with us unto the future. And it enables us to enjoy his future blessings all the more. So just as Boaz was busy working with Ruth, Jesus Christ is working unceasingly for his people as he intercedes in heaven. And he's working in us, seeking to conform us to his perfect will. So let me ask you again what I, a question I asked last week. Have you put yourself at the feet of the Lord of the harvest? Are you trusting him to work? One evidence of your trust will be your willingness to sit still, to wait and allow him to have his way. And with that, I'm going to read it. The next part of our passage, which is the final, which begins the final act of this story. If you remember in the beginning, I said that you can look at this story as uh, uh, kind of a play, kind of a a drama um, with several acts. So here we in chapter four, we begin the final act. Uh, It's going to be split in two parts. This final act is split in two parts. I will be sharing the first one today. I'm going into the first one today, and next week we'll get into that last part of this final act. So let's read again and pick up in pick up in verse 4. I mean, I'm sorry, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about, came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, uh, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Limelech, I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone, anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate uh, perpetuate the man's name on his property. The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was a method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I'm buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Limelech, Chilon, and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Mahlon's widow, as my wife, to per- perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. For those of you who may not be aware, the law of the kinsman redeemer is given in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 34. And the law governing the marriage of a widow to a brother of her dead husband is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10. Now the purpose of these laws was to persevere uh, the name and protect the property of the families in Israel. God, as we all know, owned the land and didn't want it exploited by the rich people who would take advantage of the poor people and the widows. When this law, when obeyed, these laws made sure that a dead man's family name did not die with him and that his property was not sold outside of his tra- tribe or his clan. Now, the tragedy is that the Jewish rulers didn't always obey this law, and many times, In the old testament, in the old testament scriptures, we see that the prophets they had to rebuke these Jewish rulers. They had to rebuke them for for stealing the land from the helpless. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21 says that for this was one of the reasons why the nation was taken into captivity. So in this passage now, what we just read, we're basically told what the meaning of a Redeemer is, the marks of a Redeemer, and also the method of redemption, which is what I'm going to be sharing with you now, which is what we're going to be learning today. Now The meaning of Redeemer... The word redeem means to set free by paying a price. To set free by paying a price. Now in the case of Ruth and Naomi, Elimelech's property had neither been sold, had had either been sold or was under some kind of mortgage. And the rights of the land had passed to Ruth's husband, Mahalon, when Elimelech died. This explains why Ruth was also involved in the transaction. She was too poor, however, to redeem the land. When it comes to spiritual redemption, my friends, all people, everyone, everyone is in bondage. Everyone is in bondage to sin and Satan. And we're unable ourselves to set us free, to set ourselves free. We're unable to. We can't. We're too poor. We're too wretched. Too miserable. We can't. But here's the thing. Here's the amazing and beautiful thing about the gospel. Jesus Christ. He gave his life. He gave his life as a ransom for sinners. And faith in him, by believing in him, by putting your faith in him, he sets the captives free. He sets you who are captive by sin, death, by Satan. He sets you free. He alone, Jesus Christ alone, can give you the freedom. He can give you the freedom of that enslavement. It says in John chapter 8, verse 36, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Let me try to wrap that up. Let me just quickly wrap it in, in, a, in a small little beautiful package. As a person, as, a, as an individual, as, just as a person living in this world, an unrepentant sinner, you, again, are under shackles. You are handcuffed, you, are, you have the ball and chain of sin and death wrapped around you, and nothing you do, nothing you can say, no one, no person can set you free. But when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, he set you free. He has the keys that will free you from sin and death. And all you've got to do is place your faith in him, to believe in him, to trust in him. And yes, to obey his words, that's part of it. Obedience. So if you want that redemption, if you desperately need to be freed from the shackles of sin and death. All you have to do is to place your faith and trust in Him. And after we're done with this message, I will give you an opportunity to do that. But next, we see the marks of of a Redeemer. Not, not Not everybody could perform the duties of a kinsman Redeemer Again, to begin with, he had to be a near kinsman, or as I've said before, a a near family relative. This was the major obstacle Boaz had to overcome because, as we read, there was another man in Bethlehem who was a nearer relative to Ruth than he was. When you see this as a type of Jesus Christ, it... Reminds you that he had to become related to us before he could redeem us. He became flesh and blood. He became a human being so that he could die for us on the cross. When he was born into this world as a human being in human flesh, he, at that moment, he became our near kinsman. And guess what? He will remain our near kinsman for all of eternity. It doesn't stop just at his death. It's going to go on forever. Now, in order to qualify, the kinsman redeemer also had to pay the redemption price. Ruth and Naomi were too poor to redeem themselves. But Boaz had all the resources necessary to set them free. When it comes to the redemption of sinners, nobody, no other religious figure, no other prophet, no other God out there, no one but Jesus Christ is rich enough to pay the price Indeed, the payment of money can never set sinners free. It's the shedding of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that has accomplished redemption. We have redemption through Christ's blood because he gave himself for us and purchased eternal redemption for us. This is the third qualification. The kinsman redeemer, the the kinsman redeemer had to be willing to redeem. Had to be voluntary. Couldn't be forced. And as we we just saw in this chapter, since that near kinsman, that near family relative, since he didn't want to, well, he didn't want to. He wasn't willing to redeem Ruth and Boaz. Uh, he wasn't willing to re- uh, redeem Ruth. And so, therefore, Boaz was free to purchase both the property and a wife. The nearer kinsman, yeah, he had the money. But if you look carefully, he didn't have the motivation. He was afraid of the fact that because she was a Moabitess, that is probably one of the reasons why, but he was afraid that this would jeopardize his own family inheritance. So now we see, we get to the method, the method of redemption. In ancient times, The city gate was the official court where judicial business was transacted in the presence of the elders. And so when Boaz arrived at the gate, he gathered 10 men to witness the transaction. Just then, the near family member, that near kinsman walked by, which is again another evidence of God's providence. He could have went another route. He could have stopped somewhere else and for the rest, you know, for the remainder of the day. But at just at that moment, that kinsman walked by. And so Boaz, he hit him up. He stopped him and said, let me, let, me, let me talk to you for a second. At this point, everything was ready for the great transaction that would ultimately involve, ultimately, involved the coming of the Son of God into the world. That transaction had to take place. It was necessary, it was important. Back when I gave the introduction to this book, to the book of Ruth, I mentioned that one of the key themes would be redemption. And what we see here is in this chapter, in the beginning of this chapter, actually in this entire chapter, is that this theme is, is just, it's all over the place. It's, it's prevalent here. The words redeem, buy, and purchase are used at least 15 times in this chapter. See, here's the thing. There can be no redemption without the paying Of a price. From our point of view, salvation is free to whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord. But from God's point of view, redemption is a very costly thing. As the story continues, we see that, again, the other kinsman was willing to buy the land until he learned that Ruth was part of the transaction. transaction, And then he's like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to deal with these issues, the pro- these problems that she might bring because she's, uh, it might jeopardize my inheritance and she's a Moabitess. And yeah, I don't want to deal with that. See, if he had a, if that Redeemer had a son with Ruth, and that son were his only surviving heir, Malon's property and part of his own estate would go to Elimelech's family. Also, again, as I mentioned, because Ruth was a Moabitess, it was going to create additional issues. So Boaz... He was excited. He was happy. No doubt he, he was relieved when that relative stepped aside, when he abdicated and opened the way for Ruth to become his wife. Now, it's worth noting that the nearer kinsman tried to protect his name and his inheritance. He tried to. But we don't even know what his name was. We don't even his name isn't even mentioned here. Or basically what happened to his family. But not Boaz. Boaz took the risk of love and obedience. And as a result, because of that, his name is now written in Scripture and held in honor. As it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, the one who does the will of God remains forever. I totally believe this is true for each and every one of us as well. If you remain true to Him, if you continue to love Him, if you continue to obey Him, continue to follow Him, Yes, your name will also be known throughout all of eternity. I believe that after all of us pass away, I will. Here's what I think hap- will happen to me that it won't take no more than probably two, if not no more than three generations will pass before I'll be forgotten. My name will be forgotten, my actions, what I did on this earth will be forgotten. Think of all those famous people that, well, maybe you have never thought about. All these people that invented the simple things of life that make your life more convenient or easier. Do you know the name of the person who invented the stoplight, the stop sign? Who invented the, I don't know, the car seat? You know, who invented, again, just macaroni and cheese. Um... Do you know their names? Maybe at one time, they were well known, famous. I wouldn't be surprised if in about 60, 70 years, or maybe even probably even longer than that, when the name Elon Musk is brought up, you're gonna have a lot of people saying, who's that? Who is that? Point being again, as Christians, as believers, your names will be written in a book. And that book is the book of life. And it's an eternal book. It's a book that will go on. It will basically say that you will live forever. I'd rather my name be written in that book than any book in this entire world. I'd rather be a small, anonymous pastor here in El Paso than a well-known one, but as long as my name is written in that book of life, it's all that matters to me. And it's all, it's all that matters, should matter to you too. If you have these ambitions to be famous, well-known, rich, you know, to be as famous as Bezos or Kanye or, you know. Some of these names that we know nowadays, again, it's it's all going to pass. Can't take those riches with you. But Jesus, but Jesus, he will set you free. And having, being redeemed again, your name will be worth more than every, all the riches in this world. Now, this is funny in regards to this is interesting actually, in regards to the custom of taking off the sandal. It kind of kind of it, there, a short explanation is given here, but but there isn't really any background, a lot of background to it. A lot of commentators, a lot of people believe that it relates to God's command when the Hebrews were entering the promised land, that they were to take the land that they were to walk on the land and take possession of it. That's one theory there. But what we do know that from that moment on, that the moment that that Redeemer, that near family Redeemer, um, unnamed Redeemer, took that sandal off and gave it to Boaz, the ten witnesses that were there to see all this take place, the transaction, From now on, they'd be able to testify that 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 transaction had been completed because that sandal was passed down to Boaz. It symbolized the kinsman forfeiture of his right to possess the land. And so now Boaz had the land. He had the land. He had the property. But more importantly, my friends, he had Ruth. Ruth. Again, as I mentioned last week, uh, I mentioned last week that um, there was, I gave a few comparisons between Boaz, uh, that Boaz is a picture of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. And this scene right here that we see is no exception to that as well. Let me share a few things like Boaz Jesus wasn't concerned about jeopardizing his own inheritance instead he made us part of his own made made us part of his inheritance like Boaz Jesus made his plans privately but he paid the price publicly and like Boaz Jesus did what he did because of his love for his bride. However, there's also some contrasts, some differences between Boaz and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, let me just share a few. In our story, Boaz purchased Ruth by giving out his wealth, while Jesus purchased his bride by giving himself on the cross. Boaz didn't have to suffer and die to get a bride, Boaz had a rival, had a rival in the other kinsmen. But there is no rival to challenge Jesus Christ. Boaz took Ruth that he might raise up the name of the dead. But we Christians glorify the name of the living Christ. There were witnesses on earth, to testify that Ruth belonged to Boaz. But God's people, us, we have witnesses from heaven, the Spirit and the Word. And lastly, and I'll close with this, in the two verses, in the first two verses of chapter 4, five times you find people sitting down, When Jesus Christ finished purchasing his bride, he sat down in heaven because the transaction was complete. He sat down at the right hand of the Father because the transaction was complete. Church, my friends, my brother and sister in Christ, it's done. It's finished. The work is done. He redeemed us. As I said a bit ago, there may be some of you who are looking for that redemption, who have sought that redemption in other places, in other things, in other gods. Does no one understand? Jesus Christ paid it all when he died on the cross for your sins. You, as I said, are a sinner. You can't free yourself. No one else can. No money, nothing will be able to free you, can free you. So if you're ready for that redemption, you're ready to be redeemed as well. You're ready to admit that you're a sinner and repent of those sins, and you're ready to be forgiven. I invite you to the cross to ask Jesus to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior. Right now, this decision that I'm asking you to make, because you can decide not to do it, but this decision will determine where you end up for eternity. Lord wants to save you God wants to save you that's why he sent his son to die for you don't reject that free gift that he's offering you so if you're ready to be born again you're ready to be forgiven wherever you're at wherever you may be if it's in a safe place you're not driving or anything like that I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And with all your heart and with all sincerity, I want you to pray this Lord Jesus, I admit and acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And I ask for your forgiveness. I now believe with all my heart that you died for my sins. And that three days later, you rose up out of that grave. I repent of my sins, and now turn from them. I confess you with my mouth. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for redeeming me as well. And so now, Lord, I ask you to fill me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me and teach me. That fire may burn inside of me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. If you've prayed that, I want to be the first to to welcome you into the family of God. Again, you've been redeemed, you've been set free. You no longer are held by Satan and his shackles. If you need help in your next steps of your Christian walk, please feel free of contacting me, reaching out to me. I can help you. Someone here will, I can reach out to you or someone here will reach out to you. But um, let us know how we can help you, minister to you. Um, if you need prayer, we can do that as well. I've hoped that, I hope that today's message has blessed you, has changed your life for the better. If it has and you think it might help others, someone you know, um, please, 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 feel free to share it. It could change that person's life just as, as it's changed yours. Um, thank you again for being with us, for clicking this video. I hope that you're blessed. Be a blessing to others this week, and uh, we'll see you, uh, Lord willing, next week. We love you. Goodbye. Thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel. We hope we were blessed by Pastor Angel's message. For more information about Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel, such as our service time or how to get connected, please visit our website at FVCCELP.com. If the Lord is leading you to give to the ministry of Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel, there's a PayPal link in the video description below. Once again, thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel. We hope to see you again soon.